to hear what it is that you have to say by your spirit now, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Hello, I am Chris, um, and I've been a part of the St. Saviour's family for about three years now, so it's a completely rational fisk. And if you want proof, then M, my wife, has plenty of videos of me terrified that she would gladly show you. But strangely, I do enjoy a roller coaster. And maybe that's one reason I'm really excited for this series, because it is a bit of a roller coaster. And today is not going to be an easy moment in it. It might feel like that slow climb up to the top before the big drop, or the tumbling down that leaves us thinking, what's coming next? But either way, just as those experiences are vital to any good roller coaster, in my humble opinion, in many ways today is the heart of this series on the Creed and the place from which the rest of the Creed springs from. Steve teed us up beautifully for the series last week, and I share his enthusiasm for this being a really exciting series for us as a church, an opportunity to step into the unfolding mystery of our faith together and to draw us into worship of the one that we're hearing about and help us flourish as a community. And before we dive in, I think it's important to reiterate what the creed is. It's an early statement of faith. If the early church was around today, it might have been their Instagram bio, maybe with a few more emojis in there. The creed is a formulation by our brothers and sisters. It's family business that they used as a guide rail to lead them through and that we can use in the same way today. So before we we dive in, if this is something that you believe, then can we just say it together? Not as a way of turning us all into monotonous robots, but as a way of saying, this is something that unites us together as family. And maybe we can also be cheeky and turn the eyes into we's, as I've done here. So let's go for it. Let's go for it together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our God, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Steve spoke about what the creed is and why we need one. Covered the first two lines of this, looking at God as the Father and Creator, beginning this Trinitarian vision of God that the creed sets out. And I'd encourage you to have a listen to that if you missed it. And now we have a scene change as the camera pans from the cosmic creator and father over all to a man living in Palestine 2,000 years ago. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The creed as a whole takes us on a journey from the highest highs to the lowest lows and then out into the world. And today we're going to very simply walk through these lines and try to uncover some of the beauty of Jesus that they point to. 
But first, there's a short passage from Romans that I think sets the scene uh, for where we're heading today. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So firstly, I believe in, Christ, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. What a first statement this is. And I just want to pull a few things out of here for us. Firstly, we see the Trinity beginning to be unveiled. We started with the Father, and look, here's the Son, Jesus Christ. Christ, not a second name, but a title. The Messiah, the Saviour, the Anointed One. The one the rest of the Scriptures talk about is Jesus. And we see this Trinitarian vision emanating out then into the daily habits of early believers, into hymns and prayers and through the tweaking of the Passover meal to the Eucharist. Jesus' name is right there. He's right in the mix with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the minds of the early church. Even in the New Testament itself, we see poetic refrains likely taken from early hymns. Things like, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And it's also evident from him being called the Son. This is the moment where, if you are reading this, you might see a little reference written beside it. It's essentially a quotation, a hyperlink back to another moment in the Bible, Jesus' baptism. The moment where the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love, and with him I'm well pleased. He's the son. And finally, Jesus is called our Lord. Now just go with me on this quick strand, but wherever we see Lord in capitals in the New Testament, it's a translation of the Greek kyrios, which was the word that translators would use when translating the name of God from the Hebrew, Yahweh. So here Jesus is being identified as God. But not only that, there's a softening of it. Jesus isn't just the Lord. He's our Lord. There's a personal side to this. He's, not, he's known, he's not vacant. Loved, not tolerated. Close, not distant. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This line again takes us back to Scripture. This conception by the Holy Spirit takes us back to page one of the Bible. If you've got a Bible with you, um, turn there with me, and if not, it'll come up on screen. Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit hovers. And creation, life, beauty springs forth from chaos. The Spirit hovers and Jesus is conceived. A second creation is happening here. There's something different about this Jesus. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. Another sign of the miraculous nature of his birth, but also a sign of his humanity. The king of the world, God himself, as we learned in the last line, came into this world as we all did. He was born. He had a mum. 
If you fancy a mind-bending experience this week, then why not sit for half an hour and try to comprehend that? The one who was eternally God, who was there at the beginning, hovering over the waters, is with us now. And the one who created the entire cosmos, he came into the world that he created through birth. He was a child. He was a baby. He ran around the synagogue with his friends, dressed in his cow print dungarees, maybe. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's all been very uplifting until now, but this is where the reality of the life that Jesus lived starts to invade our shiny images of him. He suffered. And if you think about it, he really did. He was hounded by the religious authorities. He constantly had people trying to catch him out. He was chased out of town several times. He was arrested, beaten, mocked. And on top of all of this, you have the harsh reality of living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Short life expectancy would have meant he's probably experienced many of his family and friends dying around him already in his life. In fact, scholars believe that Joseph, his human father, died before his public ministry began, died before he turned 30. He would have known illness. The New Testament says he knew, fam he knew famine, that he had been forced to seek asylum as a child. His life was not the happy picture that we might have in our minds. And in fact, this was so much the case that the word suffered became a customary word used to sum up Jesus' life in the early church. Imagine that being your one-word eulogy. But this also brings Jesus into the world with us, because he's not some distant supernatural spirit. He's human. He suffered just as we suffer. The mention of Pontius Pilate here also helps to ground this story in the world. This is a real-life situation. Jesus was here in human form. He interacted with people like you and me. And he suffered like you and me. There's great mysteries of Christianity that it feels like we'll never fully wrap our heads around. Some of them we've talked about already this morning. But these mysteries are all rooted and grounded in human history. I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And here we reach the lowest moment. He's lived a life of suffering, and he dies the death of a criminal. Strung up on a tree, tortured until his body gave out. And it might be that if we spend some time reflecting on it, we can grasp something of an idea of what this physical pain might have been like. But there's also the social pain of the cross. The ancient Jewish world was an honor and shame culture, meaning that status and public perception were key to living the good life. You want to go far in life? Be perceived as wise, a good leader, respected, if you're ever demeaned in public, caught out, belittled, any prospect of a good life will be gone. 
The Psalms are full of references to this. People being mocked and seeing it as a sign that God has abandoned them. In the cross, we see Jesus cast out of the human community, descending to the lowest rung on the social ladder. And this leads us to a third angle to the cross, not just the physical and social pain, but the spiritual pain that Jesus suffered. Steve talked last week about how God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been eternally, eternally in relationship with one another. Three distinct persons and yet interwoven in love. One God in three. So imagine the pain of Jesus' death as he's torn from that loving relationship and cast to the depths. He's separated from his eternal family. And in some mysterious way, the Trinitarian God is broken. We've likely all experienced the death of a family member. And because of the pandemic, we've become familiar with the fragility of life recently. Over the last few years, I've gone from having four living grandparents to just one. For some of us, it might be fresh. For others, a little bit more distant. But the pain still comes back, doesn't it? Just for a second, just feel that pain. Gives us a glimpse into the pain of the Father and the Spirit when they watch Jesus die on the cross. Before we move on from this place, we should also acknowledge that by dying, Jesus embraced our humanity at both its limits. He did the two things that we all do. He was born and he died. The fourth century theologian Gregory of Nyssa, who was from modern day Turkey, put it like this. The birth makes the death necessary. He who had decided to share our humanity had to experience all that belongs to our nature. Now human life is encompassed within two limits and if he had passed through one and not the other, he would only have half fulfilled his purpose. A whole nature had to be brought back from death. Thus, he stooped down to our dead body, stretched out a hand, as it were, to one who lay prostrate. He approached so near death as to come into contact with it. You see, by dying, by being buried, by descending to the dead, Jesus shows that death is no longer separation from God. That God entered into death means that we can be united with him in death. As Paul quoted from Hosea, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? I don't want us to jump ahead here. We likely know what's coming next, and if we don't, then the next line of the creed is a bit of a spoiler. But let's not rush ahead. Let's just sit here this week with the God who died for us who was born and died to embrace our humanity fully, who suffered like we suffer, who was fully God and yet fully human, who died a worse death than we can fully comprehend. In Jesus, we see a God who walks beside us, a God of comfort. We don't have a distant God, we have a God with us. Pastor and author Dane Ortland puts it like this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus is not Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. 
He woke up with bedhead. He had pimples at 13. He never would have appeared on the cover of Men's Health. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. Had he lived today, every last Twitter follower and Facebook friend would have unfriended him when he turned 33. He who will never unfriend us. In Jesus, we have a God who walks beside us, a God of comfort. I've been on a journey over the past few years um, working out whether ordination and full-time ministry is something that God might be calling me to and whether the Church of England wants me. Uh, this, this has involved a lot of reflection on my life, arguably too much, and thinking about where key moments and influences have occurred. And what struck me is that it's all about people, Rarely has the course of my life been altered by an inspirational talk or preach. Maybe this morning, hey? (laughs) But often, the course of my life has been altered by people. Family, friends, nurturing you, walking with you through the good and the bad. Learning with you, growing with you, supporting you, allowing you to support them. That's where we grow. That's where the direction of our life is shaped and formed. In Jesus, we have a God who walks beside us, a God of comfort. We have a God who is with us, who steps into our humanity, and as we see regularly in the Bible, walks slowly at our pace, directing us, supporting us, and comforting us. So now we live differently because the God who embraced humanity is here. We're baptized into a way of suffering, but of suffering with, not suffering alone. We have a king who's identified by a cross, not a crown. A king who humbled himself in the ultimate way, who humiliated himself in the face of a Roman culture of acquiring honor. And we die differently because the Son of God has drawn us into his death, because death is not the end, because the next line of the creed is coming. And because we have a God who has fully shared our humanity, there's nothing that can separate us from him. No experience or moment that divides us. No mistake or misstep that can act as a barrier. Every human experience that we have is an opportunity to identify with Jesus. So as the band come back up onto stage, I just want to explore where we go from here. Well, Jesus' story didn't end with his life, but lives on in his followers. Those who embrace him take on his story and write a new chapter. So for some of us today, we might be thinking, I want to be part of this story, to really know the God who walks with us and embraces our humanity. And for you, know that Jesus is here and is calling you home. No mistake you've made, no wrong turn that you've taken can separate you from the God who became human. He's here and waiting to walk beside you for the rest of your life. For others, we might just need to hear that in Jesus we have a God of comfort who walks beside us. That whatever we're going through right now, he's here, he's with us, he's for us, 
He won't leave us or abandon us. He knows what we're going through and is there beside us. And for some, we might be thinking, I know his presence with me. I've known his comfort and his love through my life. What's next? Well, firstly, I'd want to say that's enough. You don't need to prove yourself. And secondly, I challenge you to become more like him. William J. Seymour, who's essentially the man God used to bring about, the Pente- bring about Pentecostal Christianity, put it like this, in the midst of seeing miraculous things happen in his church on a daily basis. The Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it's simply a counterfeit. How can you bring more love into your home, into your street, into your workplace, into your recovery program, into your life? What does it look like for you to walk alongside those struggling, suffering, marginalized, outcasts from society? How might you show the very human, earthy love of Jesus in those places? And I'm going to ask people to be brave. Uh, And if one of these three areas hits home for you, if you're feeling called to surrender to Jesus for the first time, if you need to know God's love with you and comfort with you, if you want to be empowered to bring God's love into the context he's calling you to, then just step forwards. Uh, As we begin to worship, why don't you come to the front? There's going to be an amazing team here who would love to pray for you. Um, So as we sing this song, and stand together. Um, those, who, those of you who, for one of those three things hits home, why don't you just come forward and we'll pray for you.